Well, um, several years ago, Laura, my wife, and I were, it's before we were married, we were engaged. I was living in St. Louis at the time. And what made this season so unique is, is that in light of the engagement, we were trying to think of something fun to do for our song that we were going to do our first dance to, you know, at our wedding. And we were like, well, we could just do something kind of normal and, you know, sort of standard fare. But that's usually not how I roll. I like to kind of kick it up a notch. And so um, I was like, you know what we ought to do, Laura? Uh, We ought to learn how to dance. Like, we ought to get some dance lessons and go and, like, figure this thing out. And uh, because what I think we ought to do is, like, we should, like, we should like do some kind of like cool ballroom dance with the music. She was like, all right, cool, I'm game. So here's what we did. <laughs> we, uh, we asked my friends, Wes and Stephanie, who were both dance majors when they were in college. They were in grad school with me. They were both dance majors in college. They, uh, they ended up getting married, which I'm sure that dance major probably had something to do with them, the two of them getting married as they danced together. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, uh, we were like, he was a seminary student. And um, he, was, he would give us a good deal on it, and I want to give him a little bit of money, and, he, and it worked out great. So here's what happened. We go over to their house because we couldn't, like, find anywhere to dance, and they clear out all the furniture, you know what I mean? And it was just great open space. And, uh, and they began to kind of ask us questions. Well, like, what do you want to learn? We had a series of lessons. Like, we don't know the first thing about dance. You teach us what you want. Y'all, what I saw in the next 15 or 20 minutes was some of the most beautiful pieces of art I have ever seen in my entire life. And I'm like a man's man, kind of bro out a lot. You know what I mean? And so, like, the fact that I was watching ballroom dancing and being amazed by it, something was up. It was like a moment that I had right there. So they did, like, the waltz, and they did two types of tangos, and they were doing the one where you throw everybody around a lot. What's that one called? Swing, thank you. Yeah, so that one. And I was just wrapped with attention. I was like, that is amazing. And what was amazing about it was this, is that both of them were in step with one another. It was like they knew where to go. I mean, I just never had seen anything like, I'm not a great dancer, as you can tell. Well, listen, why is this so important? Because a lot about what we're going to look at tonight is talking about the delicacy of partners working together to make something beautiful. The real delicacy of partners working together to make something beautiful. You see, in our text tonight, we're in a section of a letter that Peter, he wrote, and it deals with what it looks like to live out the Christian life. He says to men and women who have been born again into a living hope, reaching all the way back into chapter 1, to those who fully on the grace that will be theirs when Jesus returns. He is saying that those folks, that you and me, if you are in union with Jesus that you have a new identity in Him. And in light of that new identity, in light of that new weight, in light of that new value in your life, because Jesus smiles on you now, Peter has been saying, in light of that, I want you to live out in a new way of life. And here's how he's been instructing us all the way back since chapter 2, verse 11. He's saying, I want you to think critically about living beautiful lives in the watching world around you. And that to live out lives that are attractive, that catch the eye of the surrounding culture around you that that most likely will disagree with you, that to do so is part of our very calling. And what that means is, is that one of the ways that the watching world will come to know the saving mercies and the sweet kindness 
of Jesus' work on the cross for us is through the way they live out their lives. And we've looked at this, right? We've looked at the way that, uh, that servants work with masters, right? And next week, we're going to look at everybody. But this week, the picture is that of the marriage, of the Christian marriage. In other words, what Peter is going to show us tonight is that because Christ has given us new life in Him, the Christian marriages ought to reflect His grace into the watching world. And what we're going to see is this isn't natural at all, y'all, because all of us tend to think that our lives really are about who? Moi. Me. Okay? And so the picture is, is that Jesus is going to show us through His Word tonight about the real beauty that exists, the compelling, missional, attractive component of what it looks like to live in Christian marriage. Now, because unless I don't know something about you, the, everybody in this room is likely not married. So I told Laura tonight, at my, I was like, yeah, I said, what are you teaching tonight? I said, First Peter chapter 3, she said, what's it about? It says, husband and wives. Wives and husbands. And she goes, well, why are you teaching it? Because she's like, you know, you guys are not married. And I said, well, that's a great question. And so I want to talk about this, about a couple of caveats before we get started. One, I realize that most of you are not married unless some of y'all are about to go elope or you've eloped in the past couple days or something like that. But here's, here's what I want you to see. We don't only need biblical instruction when it's applicable to us and at that component in that season of our life. You see, the vast majority of you are going to end up married one day or you want to be married one day. And it's good to know what God is calling you into before you get there for your sake and for who else's? Your future spouse's. Right? So it's, it's a teaching beforehand. Secondly, one more point that I think is worth mentioning about why to do this is because the broader culture is increasingly cynical about marriage. Is it really worth it? Why do it, right? In the church, frankly, attitudes aren't much better. And one of the reasons for these attitudes may actually be, therefore, a profound misunderstanding about the nature and purpose of what marriage is all about in the first place. And so to be instructed from the scriptures about it certainly helps us. And the last thing I want to say is in terms of context, Peter's, Peter's immediate audience that he's writing to has to deal with this very specific scenario. So you have to hear this. He is writing in such a way that where you have a married couple, but one of the spouses is a believer and the other one isn't. So he's addressing wives in that scenario and he's addressing husbands in that scenario. And the picture is, is that even though there's a very specialized focus in what Peter is writing about, that doesn't mean that the other things that he's trying to say are not applicable to what we have to learn tonight. That makes sense. But you've got to keep in mind the context. And so tonight, I just want to look very simple. I've got two main points. That's it. How Peter addresses wives and how Peter addresses husbands. Genius outline. I know it. I know it. I worked really hard on that tonight. So let's take a look, first of all, at how he addresses wives in this context. Well... I need to say this from the outset before we begin to talk about this, but you know how easy it is, right, to rip things out of context? Have y'all ever had anybody take your words out of context? You say something, you're, somebody else hears it, and you're like, what? That is not what I meant at all. That's actually not how I said it. I mean, I think of an illustration of a friend of mine who got married once, and he came back to, uh, well, he, he was engaged, and he came back into the house after proposing to his fiance at this moment now, and uh, he was surprised by his family there. And he said, he said, hey, she said, yes, we're getting married and you're all invited. It's going to be great. 
And then his, he tells a story like this. He says, now imagine if like the Star-Telegram, which is Fort Worth's paper, if you don't know that, was there, and they wrote an article about that event, right? Here's the headline, right? Jones to Mary Smith. Everyone is invited, right? Right there, words are being ripped out of their context, and they're being applied to a broader thing. And the point is here is that if you do not understand Peter's context, and what he is writing about, you will likely do this. You'll go, here's my own idea about what Peter is saying. Whoosh! And you'll put it on Peter. See what I'm saying? You'll take your own mindset and go, boom! This is what he's talking about. And good Bible reading always seeks to understand what the author meant, not, not what we think he ought to have meant. Does that make sense? So we have to do a little bit of work there, and that's why I need to spend a couple minutes just kind of telling you this one thing. Here it is. The one thing you need to know about this context in the early Greco-Roman world was this. Is that a strong society, a strong culture, was built on the blocks of a strong family. A strong household. That the Roman world was built on order and keeping things uh, fair. And the way that that was done was by establishing households that were rooted properly and that worked and properly functioned. There was order in the household. And if you began to disrupt that order, it was thought, it was believed, and it actually held true that the very social fabric was put at odds too. And cultures began to unravel. And so, hang with me. In marriages where one spouse, like I mentioned earlier, would have been a believer, and the other were not, this created an atmosphere where Peter needed to be incredibly delicate in his words, and yet he must be pastoral and instructive too. So most of these verses address to those who were um, without the lion's share of power, namely those wives. You'll see out of those seven verses, six of them address the ladies. And I only want to say this because unless you understand what was normal for sort of Christian living in the home, you simply won't get what Peter is writing into. So that's enough of the context. We can come back to it. You can ask me about it later if you want. But knowing this, let's come back to Peter's words there. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 3. Turn your eyes to the paper there. You'll notice it starts out with likewise, or in the same way, wives, be submissive to your own husbands. That likewise is a key. It's a key to turn your eyes back to what was up ahead. It's in a similar way as the way that servants ought to be subject to their masters in verse 18 of First Peter 2, in, with all respect. And he is saying, with all respect, the Christian wife is to continue to respect and to submit herself to, the, to, to her husband's authority in the home. Now, I just know, I, like, I just know what I just said rubbed right against probably 80% of you. And so I just want to say this, I get it. I understand it. We're going to talk a little bit more about what authority in the home looks like in just a moment. But here's the thing I want you to see. I want you to see that maybe the Bible has a picture of something that gives us a picture of something that's far more beautiful than the culture actually can give. And I'm not trying to pound this over your head. I'm trying to clearly give you a picture of what the Scriptures are saying, and I want you to begin to see why it might work. Here's what I mean. In other words, the wife, in this context, she has been given authority to serve. That's back up in chapter 2, verse 16. Live as people who are free, 
not using your freedom as a cover-up of evil, but living as servants of God. And Peter is saying this, that this new authority that the wife has is to be used to serve. It's to be used to serve, to serve the family and to serve the better of her household as well. And much like the opening illustration of two people dancing, right? the Bible is giving us a picture where someone must lead and someone must follow if the dance is to go well. Does that make sense? The picture is, is that all throughout the Scriptures, we see that it's the husband's, the husband's picture is one of service, of, of, of living like Christ for the, uh, in the picture, in the model of the way that he has given himself up for his bride, the church, and that in the complementary role, that the idea is that the wife as well follows in that way. That does not mean she can be exploited. As we're going to see in a moment, this isn't a license for abuse. This isn't a license for misusing authority. It's just clearly put out that the scriptures hold forth a picture of how the family is to work best. And remember, we're keeping in mind beautiful lives for the sake of the surrounding culture. In other words, these these roles that Peter is going to spell out, especially for the wife and then for the husband, as we'll look at, are for the good, for this missional, this missional component. So let's take a look at it right here. Did you see it? The text says this, that they may be one through the conduct without words of their life. In other words, what he is saying is, is that the way that the Christian wife, however she became a Christian, that she is to still live in a way that does not disrupt the social fabric of that culture. And I will say this, that Peter does not list out particulars. He doesn't say, uh, guy, you mow the yard, and girl, you do the dishes. That's just, uh, that's just silliness. That's not what the Bible's holding out. But what he is saying is that you must work on figuring this out with, in the context of the home about what it looks like to give up, to submit, to subject oneself in the context of the marriage. How does this work? A thousand different ways. It may not be to walk out in the street without your spouse, which would have been very scandalous back in the early first century. That doesn't ha- like you, uh, it, It's not scandalous for a wife to go out shopping these days, okay? But back then, that would have been very scandalous to just go out without her husband. And, that, and that's also what it's talking about there where it talks about uh, the idea of, of adorning oneself, which we're going to look at in just a moment. Here's the point that Peter is making. That Peter is making this. The goal for the Christian wife is to expose the grace of God to sinners. Yes, even her husband. And exposing her husband to that same God of all grace. And whether they are believers or not, says Peter, you show them Jesus in the way that you use your authority to serve them. This is not only the pattern of the New Testament, it's of the Old Testament as well. That's why we get this very reference to Sarah and how she served and submitted to Abraham. And this is exactly, y'all, what Jesus did for us. He voluntarily used, voluntarily used his authority to come serve us and die for us. One little caveat here I think is worth mentioning. Uh, you know I always quote, I'm sort of a Tim Keller fanboy, but I'm also a Kathy Keller fanboy, yeah, fanboy as well, to make sure I got that right. Kathy is Tim's wife, and she writes this book. She had a great book out there, and she talks about this, 
about being, she really, really wrestled and struggled. She had went to seminary too, and she really struggled with these questions about gender roles and gender identity stuff and the way that it looks like to be a Christian woman, a Christian man in the context of marriage. And she came to the conclusion, she said, look, if the second person of the Trinity can give up in his, his rights, if the second person of the Trinity, Jesus himself, can give up his rights to come rescue and to come save mankind, then I can begin to find a dignity and a worth to the way that I ought to give up my authority to be able to serve the, the, the principles and the patterns of redemption in this world. So that's really, really compelling and a really wonderful uh, argument that she makes there. I can tell you more about that if you want. Let me drive home a couple of points of application here. The thing that I want you to see here as well is that you'll notice in verse 3, he says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, and so on and so forth. And the point that he is trying to make in this very thing is to say this, Ladies, ladies, do you care more about outward adornment or do you care more about inward character formation? Because the thing that's going to last and the thing that's really going to stand in your life is the sort of woman that you are becoming. And like I mentioned earlier about why you look in advance to what you want to be, the picture that I'm trying to get you to see is this, is that Jesus is concerned with the type of woman that you are becoming. The sort of inward character, the, the, the things that make your heart who you are and less of what you look like externally. The Bible is not downplaying beauty. God is the God of all beauty. He made it all, right? The picture that he's trying to get you to see is to live as a woman who is concerned only with external adornments, whatever that might look like in our cultural moment, and to forget inward virtue and character development is to live foolishly in this world. Is to live in a way that does not see what is most important in the eyes of what, of what tr- true and beautiful images of what it looks like to be a woman. And that's what Peter is trying to get you to see. And so in light of this, I simply ask you the question, what type of woman, I wrote, what am I becoming, but I mean that for you ladies, what type of woman am I becoming through the actions of my life? Am I becoming a woman of character? Think about Proverbs 31, chapter, verse 30. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. You see, we don't turn the switch on overnight with our character, do we? Character is something that's shaped, something that's formed, something that's developed. And if you desire to be married, this sort of character will be called on to and on for in this sort of wife. So here's a question. How do you, ladies, being specific, fellas, I'm coming to you. How do you think about authority presently? With your friends? With your church? With your parents? Is your authority something that is used to demand your own rights? To express yourself? Or is it used in service as you see and you give up yourself? for the good and the flourishing of those around you. Hint, we're going to see that's exactly what the men are called to as well, by the way. We share a lot more in common than we do differences in the ways that we're to function in the kingdom. And related to this, as I already mentioned, is just the character issue about do you think more about your inward beauty or your, out, your outward um, 
outward beauty or your inward character. These are the things that God is trying to get us to see. For Christian wives living as hopeful exiles then, God is calling them to live out their new identity in a way that one, promotes the good of the culture, two, that uses her authority to submit to her husband for his good, and three, draws the watching world in. Doing so causes the surrounding non-believing culture to ask, what world would she or would you live like this? That's the aim. That's the aim. It's missional. Do you see it? It's a missional component there, a missional direction. Well, I mentioned as well that it's not only to wives that Peter speaks, but he also speaks to husbands too. And I think what you have to see here is that he is now addressing the people with the most power and influence. He went slaves or servants, he went wives, and now he's going to husbands. And he's talking about husbands in the way that they are to use their authority to serve their wives, again, in countercultural ways. Do you see that right there at the verse? Uh, so, fellows, y'all need to start listening up. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. We're going to touch on that in just a second since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Just one verse, but packed and dense here. Just dense and loaded. One of the things that I love to point out is what one of my friend, well, one of my, actually a former campus minister, his name's Brian Habig, he points out there, he says, guys, don't overlook that word live with or live. The idea of being around. Can I give you all a hint already, fellows, when you're thinking about making a name and making a career? Right? The idea of uh, I'm going to be out of the house all the time making money for my family. The Bible's smarter than you are. Who are you going to spend that money on? You're going to have a marriage left if you're always out of the home. And you're not living with your spouse. Not seeking and tending to her needs. To being there to listen to her. To know her. That language of knowledge there is an intimate understanding. Which I think is really important. Right? Are you asking questions of your spouse to say, how was your day? How are you doing? I would love to get to know what you were wrestling with and what you were struggling with. And I think that we are in some ways in a bit of a crisis because I have, I have noticed, this is not always true of RUF, but it's true of most men, is that I want y'all to long and to know and to have courage to know how to love a wife one day. And so to let your ears perk up in this way, in a way that says, what sort of man am I becoming? How is Christ shaping me? What character virtues am I taking on? And one of the things that is going to be called on is this idea of living with, with understanding and serving them. Did you see this? Showing honor to the woman as weaker vessel. Whoa, weaker vessel, like trigger alert. Here we go. Uh, listen, let's talk about that really quickly. What Peter is saying is that he is not saying weaker vessel in the sense that women are, are dumber than men. That's just not what he's talking about. Intellect is not even on the table. Emotional, the, the emotional component, not even on the table. They're not weaker because whatever reason, they, they are more emotional. That's not the point. When Peter's talking about this, he's talking literally about physical strength, and he's talking about status and position in the culture. Let's go back to physical strength real quick. I am not saying that if you took the strongest girl on this campus 
and the weakest dude on this campus, I'm not saying that the dude wouldn't be in trouble. He probably would be, okay? That's just not what he's talking about. He's talking about in general. And here's the thing. Are you husbands using your strength, using your power, using your your influence to bring about the flourishing of your wife? That's what Peter is talking about. And in fact, he does so in such a way, and he says, even though they are the weaker vessel in that sense, they are less limited with opportunities, they are less in that culture, we've changed a lot. But here's the point the words don't change. Do you show them honor? Do you pour out dignity on them? Esteem your wives for who God has made them to be. Because why? The text tells us they are co heirs. They are fellow heirs of the grace of God with you. Their story ends at the same spot that yours does. And because you have been a recipient of grace, your spouse as well is a recipient of that same grace, and you are to live in light of that in a way that dignifies their personhood. Peter assumes something, y'all. He assumes Genesis 1 and 2. He assumes Genesis 1, 26 and 28 where God makes man and He makes woman and He blesses them with equal dignity, authority, and respect. There is no, in theological words, there is no ontological difference in their, in their worth. In their being, there is, you are not more worthy because your genetic code is XY as opposed to XX and neither is that differently. The idea is that both people have dignity, value, and respect. Both genders do, and that is the bottom. What? That view crushes the culture's view. And it did in their day too. Peter's writing this, and he would have been challenging every sort of social and cultural norm about the role of women and husbands, wives and husbands in their culture. It's critical that you understand that. You show them honor. And one of the things that he says here is God says this as we close out this verse. He says, fellas, husbands, when you fail to do this, something happens. Did y'all catch it? God doesn't listen to your prayers. Communion with God is cut off because he takes it so seriously. Now, I'm just going to tell you something. That's sobering. And you know, as I was writing this sermon, I was like, I mean, I literally put this in my notes. Man, I need to hear that as a married man. And so will you at some point, fellas. Because here's the thing. There is no perfect spouse. There just isn't. And again, another preacher once said this. He said, oh, but I'm just so disappointed that I have to live with, like I'm so disappointed with, I'm married to or I'm living with such a disappointing wife. Or a disappointing husband. And the pastor says this. That's the same as saying, I live with a wife. And I live with a husband. Because all of us don't love and live as we ought to. And so that really drives us to the point then of where I want to land this. Is where in the world can we find the power and the resources to be able to live like Peter is calling us to live? And in short, I'll just tell you, it's back up in verse 18. It did not get printed. But the thing is there, as it says that he bore, he bore, sorry, it's verse 24, that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
the picture is there is that it is Christ Jesus' death for us that allows us and gives us fuel and gives us power to be able to live out these callings in the world. One last thing I want to say. I, just, I did just skip over this in my notes. I need, to, I need to talk about this. Fellas, I want to say this really quickly. The question remains to you is how are you using your power, your strength, and your influence to serve? Your church, your family, your friends, the ladies or, or female friends in your life. Are you a jerk? Or are you someone that gives yourself up for the good of the women around you? That is, that is manliness, says the Bible. And fellas, I'm telling you, you can do it. I will be wind in your sails to pat you on the butt and to bro-hug you and say, you can do this. You can do this because Christ is sufficient. Because He is enough to be able to spur you on. I want to tell you a little story real quick. A friend of mine, two friends of mine dated when they were in college. I've used this illustration before and it's been a while, but I think most of you haven't heard it. He goes over to pick her up. Okay? Knocks on the door. And she opens the door. She's in. She's dressed up, all dolled up, ready to go out. And they're going out for dinner. And, um, and when she answers the door, she was in this dress. She was looking good. And what follows, what I'm about to tell you, follows from her mouth. Okay, this is her recounting the story to me when I was a college student. She said this. He praised me and affirmed me and said that I looked beautiful that night. Then he gently and tenderly asked me, in the hopes that he would honor me as best as he could that night, if I would go back inside and change what I was wearing and put on something that wasn't quite so revealing. Truthfully, I hadn't noticed or thought about it, but I'm so glad that he did. And this is what I love. And not surprisingly, his desire to honor and protect and respect me only endeared him more to me. I just have a question. Fellas, is that in your framework? Is that in your mind? That's what it means to live like Jesus in a relationship, you know. To honor. To use your strength to help. And I'm telling you, it's exactly what Jesus does for us. It's exactly what Jesus does for us, y'all. What do you think he does? He comes to us and he gives himself up. Ephesians chapter 5 says this, that he gave himself up for his bride, his people. He is the true spouse. He is the one who loves perfectly. And when we begin to see him doing that for us, we now have power and have the resources to be able to live as he's called us to live. I'm going to close with this last story because I think it's so money. Oh, mercy. I'm running out of time. Sorry, I got excited. Promise to be worth it. Promise. If you need to leave, you can go. You're not going to hurt my feelings. Whether a wife or husband, married to believer or non-believer, marriage is to be the place where we live in such a way that we use our authority to submit to each other, serve each other, and love each other. And you know what this means? This means that while marriage is a good and a desirable thing, it is an incredibly hard 
thing to do as well in a lifetime of two sinful people giving up their rights for the other in the hopes that Jesus will be seen and be savored is a beautiful thing. Brennan Manning in his book called The Ragamuffin Gospel tells the story of a surgeon who has just operated on a young married woman's face. She had to, he had to remove a tumor from her jaw, but to do so, he had to cut a nerve that would leave her face disfigured from then on. The story reads, and I quote, I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, somewhat clownish, a tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, had been severed. She will be this way from now on. I had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh, nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek. I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband's in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me. The moment is a private one. Who are they, I ask myself, he and this wry mouth that I have made, who gaze at each other so generously, so lovingly? The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say, it will. It was because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent, but the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. And at once I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a God moment. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I'm so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers to show her that her kiss still works. Do you believe that Jesus loves you like that? That He bends to all your failures, all your deficiencies, all your disfigurements, and meets you with a kiss in the most intimate of ways because you are His beloved? Do you see Jesus as the true groom who commits Himself to us, y'all? To us. I mean, just let that sit in. He gives himself to us. And I'm telling you, when you begin to see that, you have power. Power to live out beautiful lives for him. You have the real love that your heart most longs for. Let's pray. Lord, make these things true for us. Pound them deep into our hearts, we pray. Help us to see Jesus as the only one who can ever love us and that will meet us and satisfy us. And then help us to live, O oh Lord, in ways that are honoring to You. Take these things and make them real for us, we pray. And it's in Your name. Amen.